I was really excited when I heard the uh, the senses people are getting in pre-prayer today. And I'm hoping that this, what I'm about to share, will be part of helping you feel free and will help make shifts for you and how you relate to God. I can't do that, but Holy Spirit, <laughs> I ask that you do all that you do so well. I ask that you work in each of our hearts and bring us deep revelation and understanding in the deepest places of our heart. The f- for freedom, for relationship with you, for walking more fully as daughters and sons, and representing, representing our dad on the earth, <laughs> inviting other, all the other sons and daughters to come in. Yeah. We've had um, the author of The Shack here several times, William Paul Young. And it's been such an encouragement to hear from him. And he has, if anyone's any, if you had a chance to be close to him, he has an amazing anointing to, to be present. To be, if he's with you, he's with you. And uh, he walks in such grace. But it's been hard one grace, as many of you know his background story. And I've been wanting to get some of some of the truths that he he has um, shared in more more deeply. And I was listening to the shack again recently. I'm going to read you a little bit of it because it pertains to this this message. Now, for those who haven't read the shack, the shack, um, it's very some folks find it very controversial. Uh, this, this, this man named Mackenzie has had a great sadness, a terrible tragedy in his life, and he's really frustrated with God and really upset. And God writes him a note saying, hey, we haven't been together for a while. Come meet me at the shack. And he, he goes to this shack that, where, where the great tragedy actually happened. And there he meets uh, Papa, but Papa is a, is a large... African American woman, full of love, full of joy, loves to cook, and, there, and there's Jesus, and then there's Holy Spirit. So uh, later on, Papa shows up as a man, but for Mackenzie, with his relationship with his dad, Papa knew it was safer for for Papa to show up first of all in a different way. And Papa's trying to explain some things to Mackenzie. At this point. You don't even comprehend that freedom is an incremental process. Gently reaching out, Papa took Max's hand in hers, flower-covered and all, and looked him straight in the eyes. She continued, Mackenzie, the truth shall set you free. And the truth has a name. He's over in the woodshop right now, covered in sawdust. She's referring to Jesus. Everything is about him. And freedom is a process that happens inside a relationship with him. Then all the stuff you feel churning around inside will start to work its way out. How can you really know how I feel? 
Mac asks, looking back into her eyes. Papa didn't answer, only looking down at their hands. Mackenzie's gaze followed hers, and for the first time, Mac noticed the scars in her wrists, like those he now assumed Jesus had also on his. She showed him, she allowed him to tenderly touch the scars, outlines of a deep piercing. He finally looked up again into her eyes. Tears were slowly making their way down her face. in little pathways through the flower that dusted her cheeks. Don't ever think that what my son chose to do didn't cost us dearly. Love always leaves a significant mark, she stated softly and gently. We were there together. Mac was surprised. At the cross? Now wait, I thought you left him. You know, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was a scripture that had often haunted Mac in the great sadness. You misunderstand the mystery there, Papa said. Regardless of what he felt at that moment, I never left him. How can you say that? You abandoned him just like you abandoned me. Mackenzie, I never left him, and I have never left you. That makes no sense to me, he snapped. He's not convinced yet. (laughs) So I was intrigued by this. Because I'd always been taught that, that Father God poured out all the wrath he had towards us on Jesus. How many of you have been raised with that teaching? Yeah, a lot of us. Probably most of us at some way or another, unless you were brought up at blazing fire. <laughs> so I've been on a journey to try and understand more. And you get to walk with me for a bit. I've had this imprinted upon me as a Western evangelical Christian. And so what I'm going to share tonight, I hope will help you as it's been helping me. I also want you to know from the start that I'm not assuming or expecting any of you to accept the shift that I'm uh, I'm going to be talking about. Okay, so no pressure. Uh, We're all on this journey as... As, uh, as Papa said to Mackenzie, freedom is an incremental process. Yeah, so there's lots of grace there. Just want, so there's no, no, no stress or pressure here, um, but hopefully some, some good stuff for all of us. So after being intrigued about this, I then picked up a book that Paul Young suggested, The Shack Revisited, which is a book by C. Baxter Kruger, it's a really good book. It's, it's full of wonderful insights, lots of scriptures, lots of understandings. And from there, I also started reading another book, A More Christ-Like God, by Bradley Jerzak, A More Beautiful Gospel. And that led me further. 
But before we go further, we're going to pray for another moment. Holy Spirit, we invite you to work deep in our hearts. Bring, bring our understanding in line with true revelation of Jesus and Father God. So we're trusting Holy Spirit to, to bring, the, bring the, the truth. And anything that your spirit doesn't resonate with God's spirit about, I encourage you to continue checking in about that, okay? Because I really want the Holy Spirit to do his, his work in us. So um, Brad Jerzak, the one who wrote this book a few years ago, had a, created a video on YouTube. It's called The Gospel in Chairs. And here's the little interview of, of Bradley to give some background. Welcome, Brad Jozak. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm from uh, Abbotsford, British Columbia, Canada, and I'm based there as an author and teacher, and I attend Freshwind Christian Fellowship, where my wife Eden is the pastor. So tell us a little bit about the source of the Gospel of Chairs. A priest from the East Orthodox Church in Colorado Springs in the United States came up with the Gospel in Chairs. And then Brian Zond, a friend of mine and I, have been tweaking it and applying it to our settings and situations. And now Brian and I have conspired to start a chair revival. So we're training others to share the gospel in chairs. So why do we need an upgrade? I think we need an upgrade in the gospel in chairs because that older version of it was not nearly old enough, maybe only 500 years old. And in it, it really painted a, a very negative image of God. In fact, a God that was not very Christ-like a God who was so full of wrath and, and needed to satisfy his anger through punishment, and specifically violent punishment, uh, through the sacrifice of his own son, that if you tell someone from the Eastern Church this, they'll say, that's not Yahweh, that's Molech. And it's a kind of image of God uh, that, as I said in the Gospel and Chairs, pits God against Jesus, pits God against us. It's not very like the God that Jesus revealed when he talked about his father. And so in the upgrade, what we're hoping to do is, is tell the story of Jesus in a way that sounds much more like good news, because uh, a God that we will continue to run from out of fear or even sort of sign up for because we're threatened with you know, hell or divine judgment um, doesn't seem like the God who came in the form of Christ, that sinners love to be around and were actually drawn to quite naturally and enjoyed his company and ate with him and so on. So that's the God we want to introduce people to. What happened for me when I first heard this was it was like it renewed my mind. It changed my thinking. I'm, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. But there is a temptation, I think, to feel like, you know, sometimes he puts you through suffering or sometimes, you know, you go through hard things or even if you just haven't been good enough or you haven't been holy enough and it kind of makes you feel like God's away from you or separated from you. And what I loved about the Gospel of Chairs is it made me feel like he's for me, he's with me, he's chasing me 
And not only did that make a, a kind of difference for me, but then it suddenly made me realize if he's doing that for me, that's how he views others. Yeah, I think you've hit a key there about how God sees you. You see, in the former version, the idea is this, that uh, John Calvin said, God's primary disposition towards you is enmity. That means the very first thing he thinks of when he looks at you is that he's angry. And that even when Jesus comes to save us, it's uh, Martin Luther said, well, you're still um, now snow-covered dung. In other words, uh, you're a piece of crap, but it's okay because when God looks at you, he doesn't really see you. He sees Jesus. And even some of the modern theologians, they say that Jesus is your white, is, is your asbestos suit to protect you from the white hot wrath of God. Um, this second version has, not only do you see yourself differently, but God sees you differently. When he looks to the very, very heart of who you are, he, he sees his daughter. When he sees past your sin, past your wounds, into your true self, his primary disposition has always been and will always be absolute love. That's his instinct. That's his very nature. And so uh, I think that in changing how we see God, it changes how we see us. And then you've really hit on something else there. It, then that begins to change how we see others. When we look into the face of God in Christ and we see mercy and tenderness and loving kindness, that begins to reflect off of us onto those we look at. Unfortunately, when we see him as, as someone to be saved from, as if Jesus needed us to save us from his father and it's good cop, bad cop kind of thing, we begin to reflect that and we are harsh and critical and judgmental and we may even at some point become violent because we're now his agents of wrath, you know. So when I weigh the two messages, both are calls to salvation, but one bears much cleaner fruit, much better fruit, and, and sounds like much better news, frankly, something you'd be okay to call the gospel. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Good news. That was a lot, huh? <laughs> Uh, how, how many of you also got the message that, well, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus, otherwise you're, you're toast, you know? Have, have anyone else gotten that message, heard that message taught somewhere? Yeah, yeah. You never heard it here, though, have you? No. And so what I'm, in, what I'm sharing tonight really is completely, I think, in alignment with, with our values here. But I wanted to address a thing that's kind of, well, for me, it's been like this, this wound, of, of, I guess God's really scarier than I, I, I hope He is. Does that make sense? That Father God, I hope I'm connecting with some of you. So, so I'm hoping and I'm praying that that whatever splinters of distrust and fear, that the Holy Spirit will rem- remove them from our our hearts about about about. Papa, about Father God. So uh, we're now going to listen to um, the first version, the version you're, we're all kind of familiar with, and he uses chairs. So you can help with starting the chair revival now if you want. <laughs> but it will be the second version. After the first version, I'm going to be talking, unpacking it a bit before we go on to the, the second one.
I do, do one more? Yeah. These days, God is upgrading our vision of the gospel, our understanding of the gospel, our telling of the gospel. He's not upgrading the gospel. The gospel's perfect. The gospel is the story of Jesus. If you want to know what the gospel is, you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But as we've been traveling through history and the Holy Spirit's leading us into all truth, we're finding that he is upgrading our understanding or our vision of what that looks like. And so what I want to share today is something we've called the gospel in chairs. The gospel in chairs compares two versions of the gospels that we've learned over the years. The first one we call the legal version or the penal version or juridical version of the gospel. And the idea is that we have a metaphor of a courtroom drama where sin is law-breaking behavior, where God is a judge who needs to punish sin, and where Jesus comes as an advocate to free us from the wrath of this judge. The second version we'll be looking at, we might call the therapeutic version or restorative version or curative version. It's also the patristic version. It's a much more ancient version uh, of the gospel that you might associate with the Desert Fathers, with the patristics, with the Celtic Christians. And we're sort of remembering it in these days as we begin to fellowship with the Eastern Church. In this vision, the gospel is not so much using a metaphor of a courtroom drama, but more like a hospital, where sin is actually much more serious than law-breaking behavior. It's a fatal disease that causes a suffering in our soul, which produces all that behavior. So rather than needing a judge to come and punish, what we need is a great physician who will come to heal us at the very deepest levels of our pain. So here we have the gospel in chairs. The first version, this legal version, looks something like this. In the beginning, God set Adam and Eve, humankind, in the Garden of Eden. Humankind was uh, meant to be representing God in the earth, his image, his likeness, mediating the love of God, the will of God in creation. But at some point, Adam and Eve sinned, and they turned their backs on God. And in sinning, they became sinners, And because God is holy, righteous, and pure and cannot look on sin, he had to turn his back on them and expel them from the garden. And they lived in our creation as a place that was cursed, that caused them to have to labor. And no matter what they did in trying to turn to God through religion, through self-righteous acts, through uh, rituals and sacrifices, none of that was able to reconcile them with God. Thanks be to God. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus, into this world to live in our stead. And he related to God in full surrender, in perfect obedience in every way. He lived his life in this way, and at the end of his life, the unthinkable happens. His own people take him, and they crucify him on a cross. They turn their backs on him and murder him. In doing this, the Father himself imputes the sin and the guilt of the world on his own Son. He turns his back on his own Son and allows him to go into the grave for us and condemns us in our place. Well, thanks be to God, 
He raised this Christ from the dead and has restored him uh, to the heavenly places. And now anybody who believes that Jesus has done this in our place has taken the full punishment of God and suffered the penalty of sin can live in fellowship with him and be restored. All those who believe can walk with Jesus and someday uh, when we go to be with him we'll enjoy eternity forever. But for those who have turned their backs on this, uh, this gospel, who've not received the love and forgiveness of Jesus, God, in his wrath, must allow them to go their way. And finally, in the end, they enter the grave and experience eternal conscious torment forever, apart from God. All we need to do is respond to this gospel and we receive eternal life. That's the juridical or penal or legal view of the gospel as we've learned it. And you know, it is biblical. You can preach it with an anointing, and many come to salvation through this message. But we've also been discovering this older, ancient message, the message we call... Hold that thought. So did you did you hear uh, Rad Jerzak? He said this this message does have an anointing. People do get saved, so he's not like it's not like erasing it or completely de- or devaluing it. What has been good, and I'm, I'm aware of ministries that have a very judgmental, harsh perspective, and people get healed and saved. Um, so God still works even with this message. Okay. So that's the interesting thing. <laughs> I'm shocked that he would do that, but he does. Um, he's not waiting for us to get our message completely right when people want to turn their hearts to Jesus. Amen. So, did God pour out his wrath on Jesus? That's what most of us have been taught. The image of a righteously angry God punishing Jesus for our sins permeates much of Western Christianity. It's kind of like the water we swim in, isn't it? But this was not the view of the early church leaders, surprisingly enough. Less than 500 years ago, a theologian named John Calvin articulated this theory of what's now called penal substitution that God is just God's just nature required punishment for sin and Jesus accepted God's full wrath on our behalf Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Yeah. And what's the fruit? As as Brad Jerzak said, um, some of the fruit isn't very clean. It's it's mixed, isn't it? One of the fruits is it leads us to see Father God as too holy to stay in relationship with us when we sin. And it leads us to see Father God as intrinsically wrathful towards us. What what, uh, he quoted John Calvin saying, his basic attitude towards us is is, uh, enmity. 
But we're, so we're only okay if we're hiding in Jesus. As, uh, as Paul Young irreverently said, um, did you remember, how many of you were here when he, he was here last time? Okay, about, about half. Uh, Paul gave this, kind of, this illustration. Um, Jesus goes to Father God and says, I'll, I re- God, I really like Russ. I'd really like to have him over at the house again. And, and Father God goes, oh, not Russ. He, he tracks crap on the carpet. He makes a mess. He's not got a good attitude. But Jesus says, oh, but Father, I really love him. And Father goes, okay, one more time. And Paul goes on to say, and so we were... You're over there at Father's house with Jesus, but if Jesus goes to the bathroom, you don't know what's going to happen to you. <laughs> yeah, oh boy, yeah. Uh, another fruit of this um, kind of this uh, atonement theory, if you will, is uh, it's an easy step from there to believe that we are being like our Heavenly Father when we execute vengeance and judgment and wrath on other people. Yeah. And that's Actually, that's been true in my life. And earlier on, I, I, thought, it was, I thought my wrath was uh, my rage, my attempts to control my family. Were, uh, I was just lining up right with God because I didn't want him to be mad at me. So, caused a lot of damage. And actually, um, there's a scripture that says the, um, the wrath of men does not accomplish the purposes of God. And one last one, well, there's lots more, but these are the ones I'm talking about today, is it portrays a temporary split within the Trinity. How could that be? But it does, doesn't it? So there's... There's, to me, there's some, big, there's some big issues there. But you want to look at the Bible. You want to, is, this, you know, is this scriptural? Uh, it turns out that some Bible verses seem to imply this penal substitution. Here's a scripture from the, the New American Standard Version. This is uh, Romans 5, 8 through 9. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Sounds like that's, the, sounds like that's lining up with, with the uh, penal substitution theory, doesn't it? Well, here's an interesting note. The italicized of God is not in the Greek manuscript. It was added by the, the uh, New American Standard translators. Now, I really want to hand it to them. They at least italicize it to announce to, and let you know that wasn't in the original. Most, most translations don't even do that. Isn't that interesting? Now, the Bible still does talk about God's wrath. And I actually tried to, tried to look into a lot of that, but I realized I wasn't going to have time to try and cover that and get to, and go through the main point. Maybe another time we can we can look at what does what do, do those um, those scriptures about God's wrath mean? Uh, often, just a, just a quick side note: the um, the 
the word translated wrath, at least in the in the King James, is uh, is the Greek word orge, which means often means to have a strong feeling. Uh, often refers to anger or wrath. Uh, however, the the philosopher Aristotle, over three hundred years before Jesus, was talking about this word and how do you how do, what you were trying to do when you were in uh, in the theater trying to help people feel things. And he said that that orge is can be described as longing with with some pain. Now that's a whole different description of what God might be feeling about our our mess, making messes of our lives. Yeah. I'm not saying that's always the case. We want to look at. I want to look at that more carefully. Yeah. So, hope this is helping. Here's a, here's a quote from C. Baxter Kruger. We'll be reading a couple of uh, paragraphs from him from the Shack Revisited. The humiliation that Jesus bore, the torment he suffered, was not divine, but human. We mocked him. We detested him. We judged him. We ridiculed him, tortured him, and turned our face from him. It was not the Father or the Holy Spirit who abandoned Jesus and banished him to the abyss of shame. It was the human race. We cursed him. The Gospel of the Cross on the cross, Jesus bore the great sadness of the world. Remember Max, great sadness? He gave himself into the trauma of our darkness. It deserves repeating. The gospel is not the news that we can accept an absent Jesus into our lives, meaning one that may not really show up. The gospel is the news that the Father's Son has received us into his life. Yeah, that deserves repeating. The gospel is not the news that we can accept an an absent Jesus into our lives. The gospel is the news that the Father's Son has received us into his Yeah, it is good. What Jesus did is he he accepted all of our stuff. In Isaiah 53, I'll track that one down. 53, uh, 2 through 7 in the New Jerusalem Bible and in the Message Bible, the key word in verse 6 is paga, to meet, to encounter, to fall upon. The Lord caused the iniquity of us all to meet, to encounter, to fall upon Jesus. So he did experience tremendous, tremendous, horrible suffering. All of our stuff. He, he met it, he encountered it, and it fell upon him. So this isn't minimizing his suffering, but we're talking about what was the source. Yeah. 
Okay, so you ready for the second version? Yeah. All right, take it away, Brad. Through this message. But we've also been discovering this older, ancient message, the message we call the restorative view or the therapeutic view or the curative view. And it goes something like this. Once again, we have God, and he sets humankind, Adam and Eve, in the garden, created in his image and likeness, meant to be his representatives on earth, and meant to walk in perfect fellowship with this God. And one day, Adam and Eve, through temptation, stumble into sin. And in stumbling into sin, something much worse than personal guilt happens. They become subject to futility and death. They receive in themselves the, the, the full penalty of their actions, which is going their own way in a self-destructive trajectory. And what happens is God comes and he says, Adam, Eve, where are you? What have you done? And he realizes that they must leave the garden and go into this world. But when they do, what does God do? He comes with them. And he clothes them. And he protects them. And he gives them a life. They have children, Cain and Abel. One day Cain decides in his jealousy to plot to murder his brother. And what does God do? He comes to Cain. And he says, Cain, what are you planning? What have you done? Where is your brother? And he sends Cain east of Eden. And he needs to go into the cities and, and suffer the danger of one who's been known as a murderer. And what does God do? He puts a mark on his head and he protects him as long as he lives. And this is the history of the people of God that over and over we turn from him in our rebellion and he comes looking for us. He warns us. He chastises us and he makes a way to reconcile us. And even as Israel went off through uh, their, their period with Abraham, with Moses, with David, we see all sorts of sins, all sorts of wickedness. And what does God do? He comes and finds Abraham. He comes and finds Moses. He comes and finds David. He comes and finds his people and he offers a way to repentance and reconciliation. Here is a man who in his greed, in his insecurity, betrays his people, becomes a tax collector. He loses all his friends and he steals from his neighbors and he's despised and rejected and loses his community. And what does God do? God becomes man. And he walks under a tree one day and says, Zacchaeus, come down from there. I want to have dinner with you. I want to be your friend. I won't reject you. I will restore you. Here is a woman who, in the brokenness of her heart, in the longing she has for love, moves from marriage to marriage to marriage, and after divorcing five men, is now living with another. And what does God do? He comes, and he sits beside her at a well, and he says to her, the very thing you are longing for is the waters of life, and I can give that to you. And when I give that to you, you will never thirst again. Here's a woman caught in adultery. You wonder where the man was. She's about to be stoned by the people 
of her village and under the law. She's condemned to death. And what does God do? He comes and he kneels beside her and he begins to write in the dust until all of her accusers are gone. And then he looks at her and he says, neither will I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Notice that he doesn't say, go and sin no more or I will condemn you. But it has more the spirit of, I am giving you a fresh start. And you, you get to proceed from this day with no condemnation. Free from whatever addictions and, and troubles sent you into this relationship. Here is a man possessed by demons. And he's lost his mind and he's living in a graveyard. When they try to shackle him with chains, he supernaturally breaks the chains and terrifies the people. And now he's living in isolation and self-abuse and, and uh, cutting himself and completely in mental illness. And what does God do? He gets in a boat. And he crosses the Sea of Galilee. And when he sets his foot in that region, the principalities and powers must have shaken because this Jesus goes and finds this man And he restores his mind, he restores his health, he restores his clothing, and he sends his demons into the pigs who are driven into the sea. Here is a man who through the random tragedies of this life finds himself with a disease or disability that leaves him paralytic. Those in the community would have assumed that such a man is under a curse because they believed all that was tragedy, all that was suffering, all that was disease, was imposed by God as punishment. But what does God do? He comes into a home and he finds himself looking up at a ceiling as it's being torn open and the man's faithful friends drop him down below and he lays hands on this man and says, Son, I forgive you. Now get up. Take up your mat and walk. Here's a woman in my city who, through a painful childhood, begins drinking as a very young girl, develops an addiction to alcohol, and eventually finds herself in a virtual condition of slavery in a crack house. And what does God do? He comes and in the form of a man, he finds her and rescues her from that place and gives her a home, gives her a family, gives her children, gives her a faith, and she discovers the meeting place of the heart where she gets to know Jesus. But one day, this woman falls off the wagon through a series of events. She loses her husband. She loses her children. She loses her home, and she ends up living in the streets, homeless. And even in that condition, something in her heart cries out. And what does God do? He welcomes her back home. He brings her through detox. He sends her into a recovery house. And in that place, this woman cries out to God and says, I have lost everything. And it's my fault. And I'm so sorry. And in that moment, she sees this God take her needle kit and inject himself with the very drugs that she had taken. And she cries out in grief, No, you can't do that. And he says, That's the grief I felt every time you took up this kit. Not disgust, not disdain, not hatred and anger, but the love of God that grieves those who are broken. And in that moment, she was freed forever 
from her addiction. And for 10 years, she's been clean and sober. She's been restored and reconciled to her family. She's entered into a marriage where she's now faithful to her husband and they minister together. This is the gospel of reconciliation, the gospel of restoration where the great physician comes and finds us. But you know, in this story too, the unthinkable happens. Humankind takes this Christ and they crucify him and they turn from him and they die to their own conscience. And even in that death, what, what does God do? He says, I forgive you. And he says, even if you make your bed in Sheol, I am there. And he follows us into the grave. But this is also the God who says, I'm the one who was dead, but I'm now alive. I'm the one who holds the keys of death and Hades. And the question for us today is, if Jesus holds the keys of death and Hades, what do you think he'll do with them? And he goes into that grave and he calls out all those who are in the tombs and they rise and for everyone, everywhere, the love of God is perpetually present. And a river of fire flows from his throne and it reaches out in love to all humankind and for all those who will return that love with love. They experience the paradise of God in their hearts. For those who turn from this God and say, I don't want that love, what does God do? In his wild passion for us as people, he pursues us. And that love will feel like hell. That love will feel like torment as long as we run. And as long as we run, he will run, chasing us because his mercy endures for how long? Forever. And so this one who conquered death, who conquered the grave, who took the keys and led a, a host of captives out of the grave, now pursues us forever and wants you to know something about this second version of the gospel. And that is this. He is always towards you. He is always towards you. And when you run from him, he is always towards you. And when you ignore him, he always comes and speaks. And when we try to flee from him, don't you wish you could? But he's perpetually there always wanting to love us, always wanting to welcome us, always inviting us home. And this is the restorative view of the gospel, the gospel of reconciliation. And it's a vision that God has given us, and it's a helpful vision, I think, especially for two reasons. Number one, in this version of the gospel, did you notice that it never pits God against Jesus? Jesus did not come to satisfy God's wrath. He did not come to pacify God's anger. He did not come to appease God's rage. What the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God was not torturing his son on the cross or 
jabbing the spear into his side. Zechariah 12 says, we will look on Yahweh, the one we have pierced. And when we do, we will mourn as one mourns for an only son and then a spirit of supplication will come on us and we will be reconciled. So this kind of uh, vision of the gospel never pits the father against the son. Where did we get the idea that he would? Part of it is from one statement in the Bible where we read, Jesus says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we think, we think that God has turned his back on his own son. But Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, which is a prophetic vision of the entire cross event. And if we would just keep reading, we'd get to verse 22, 23, and 24, where the prophetic witness is this. Tell my brothers and sisters that he has not despised the afflicted one. Tell my brothers and sisters to rejoice because not once did he ever turn his face from me. Not once did he ever turn his face from me. So God is never pitted against Jesus. He is in Christ, crucified and forgiving. Second, in this vision of the gospel, it never pits God against you. It never says that you are too sinful for God and that in His holiness and in His righteousness, God cannot look on you. Where did we get the idea that He would ever turn from sinners? I believe that we got that idea from half a verse in Habakkuk 1 verse 13 where Habakkuk complains to God and says, you are so holy and righteous and just, you can't look on sin. But if we would just keep reading, the rest of the verse says this, so why do you? Why are you so patient with this wickedness? Why do you look on this? How can you? And what we find in Jesus is that God has come in the flesh in perfection, in holiness, and in purity, but he can look sinners in the eye. He can speak to sinners face to face. He can dine with sinners day after day, and he can embrace sinners in all of their wickedness, in all of their leprosy, in all of their sickness, and he can say, I'm the great physician, look at me, and you'll be healed. Who is it that turns from sinners because they are so uh, gross and defiling? That's the Pharisee. Can I suggest that God is not like a Pharisee? That God is like Jesus. God is exactly like Jesus. God has always been exactly like Jesus and always will be. We didn't always know that, but we do now. And so here's the good news today that I want to leave you with. That God is always towards you. When you run, He will be towards you. When you're angry, he will be towards you. When you praise him and surrender to him, he will always be towards you. He is with us and for us forever. Thank you. It's definitely worth watching again. But we won't do that tonight. That was powerful. Yeah. As I've been listening to it a few times, 
Brad kept on talking about God doing the things that Jesus was doing. Like God got in the boat and went across the lake to the uh, the, the gathering demoniac. Did you know, you might not have noticed that the first time, but he was he was call, he was calling Jesus God. Surprise, yeah. And and there's really strong, good scriptural reasons for that. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he told his disciples. I and the Father are one. But the uh, the first version seems to pit Father against Son, doesn't it? At least for a while. Because, because of our legalistic view of things. Because we... In, the legalistic view is really the, the Pharisee view, isn't it? We want to know what we need to do so we can just keep on doing what we feel like doing afterwards, right? Like, what, what, what are the loopholes? What's the ways I can game this um, outside a real relationship? Because that's part of our, part of our nature. The, our first nature, the nature from Adam is is we want to be independent. We, we, don't, we don't want... We, we are scared of real relationship. But he's healing our hearts, isn't he? And that's, and that's where this actually all comes back to, is relationship, isn't it? And his father's, Father God's heart, Jesus' heart, Holy Spirit's heart, is for us. So... I'm moved by the stories of God leaning towards us again and again. Even when we've turned away. Yeah. Yeah. So I just invite you to take a moment or a few moments right now and reflect on the times when God has pursued you. When Jesus has pursued you. Thank you. Thank you, Papa. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. When we felt worthless, when we felt dirty, when we felt so evil, so destructive, you still pursued us. when we felt inadequate, when we felt like a failure, you loved pursuing us.
friend of mine, a friend of Susan and mine, uh, in fact, he actually came to the picnic too. Israel, how many of you folks know is Israel Loya? Some of you folks sat with him. He's been, um, he's been down in Nicaragua with his wife and, and, and son just seeing what God's up to and being led by the Spirit. It's amazing. He told me a story back when he was, uh, he had come back and was living, he was living at his folks, his, his dad's house, his folks' house, and he was struggling. He was struggling with all the pain from his childhood, all the disconnections, all the, all the ways his heart hadn't really been met. All the disconnections. And, and his responses to them. A lot of our trouble is how we respond to those things, isn't it? And he cried out in his pain to God. And he saw a vision, a powerful vision. It was a vision of, of Father God. And out of Father God's eyes, each eye flowed a river. From one eye was a river of unconditional love. And from the other eye flowed absolute validation. Unconditional love and absolute validation. But to Israel's consternation, there is a huge mountain of stuff between him and that, those two rivers of life flowing towards him, for him. He knew those rivers were for, were for him. He knew that was that was those rivers were actually Father God's heart looking at him and sending those rivers of unconditional love and absolute validation. But there was a mountain. It was a mountain of his crap. Can you say that in church? I just did. Well, um, Paul Young actually told us the Greek word is uh, scubula. Does that sound better? <laughs> <clears throat> and Israel at that time, I think his name was still James, was flummoxed. Like all this, all this good stuff is is for me, but all my crap is in the way. And he didn't know what to do. And it, it finally came to him. Well, maybe I can just consume it, and that'll that'll work it down eventually. Yeah, kind of graphic, but anyway, um, that he's just—I'm just telling you the story as he told me. And and Father said, "No, I want you to um, to throw it at me." And he was shocked. Of course, we'd all be shocked. This one who loves us, this one who's perfect, this one who has all is wanting to give us good stuff. Why would we do that? But he kept on being encouraged, and he finally did. He somehow, in the vision, picked it all up and threw it at Father and Jesus, because they were together, right? They were one. And it went right, it went right past, went right through him. Didn't, didn't spatter him a bit. Went right through Father and disappeared. And then those rivers could just flow. And he experienced that flow of unconditional love. And that flow of absolute validation. What we all long for is sons and daughters, don't we? Yeah. And he's lived 
experiencing more of that ever since. Jesus with Father are always turned towards you, even when you turn away. The beautiful gospel is love himself chasing us, even submitting to our cruel responses to him so that our hatred is disarmed. Jesus with Father receiving, removing our crap so it is no longer in our way, no longer keeping us from the rivers of his love and approval. That's, I believe that's part of what the meaning of the cross is. Even though we might not have been there physically 2,000 years ago, somehow all of our stuff he was willing to absorb, absorb it. He didn't actually absorb it. it. He took it and knew what to do with it. But he felt it along the way, didn't he? Yeah. In our, in our state before Jesus, we, we do have an enmity against God. It's it, because we want to be independent. We don't want anyone telling us what to do. We don't want anyone giving us any rules. And uh, our, dar- our thoughts are darkened, and we, we, we handle things in, in a really destructive way. I know I have. Je- but Jesus, Je- Jesus met us right in that place where we are. He didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up. He met us there, absorbed it, and let us know that he's, he's willing to be with us even there. And then he cleanses us, doesn't he? He washes us with the water of his word. He cleanses us with his own blood. Makes us clean, makes us whole. I like that word better than holy, because holy has so many connotations. But he's about making us whole, like him. Wholehearted. Yeah. And I'll pray for you. Thank you for tonight, Holy Spirit. Thank you for your love, Father, and Jesus. We receive your love. We receive the truth that you pursue us even when we run away and when we turn away. And we rest in the truth of your love for us and your absolute validation for us. Even when we don't believe we deserve it yet. Amen.